You have 24 minutes, the podcast from 24 Hour Nation. My name is Randall White. For many around the world, Amsterdam conjures up the image of being the sin city of Europe. What may not come to mind, however, is a more nuanced view that this 24-hour city's nighttime economy is an integral element of Amsterdam's heritage. In 2014, Amsterdam was the first city to officially designate an individual, Mirik Milan, as Nachtburgermeister, or Night Mayor. In 2014, nighttime stakeholders formed the Nightmare Foundation of Amsterdam to strengthen, sustain, and further define the terms of office for the city's Nightmare. This year, stakeholders publicly elected poet and spoken word performing artist Frick Wallach as Amsterdam's latest Nachtburgmeister. Listen in as we spend 24 minutes with Frick Wallach. So what you kind of see is that the Nightmare Foundation has arisen on the one hand very organically. You know, of course, the Netherlands had uh, the first Nightmare internationally. It's very much a concept which, you know, for the works of Merrick, you know, has been grown internationally, but it's very much a Dutch export product. And how each individual Nightmare kind of sees their position has also changed over time. Um, and to kind of facilitate a continuous flow of Nightmares to make sure that, you know, the work and the foundation isn't being lost a chance or you know being handled by a sitting nightmare at the time. Uh, the Nightmare Foundation was founded. It has now been operating for quite a while. And as a result, it has very much resulted in a very strong nightmare ship here in Amsterdam. Um, and of course, as you are well aware, been you know, uh, changed internationally, the world, exported right? massively. Yeah. We're very much an independent organization. Um, that is by design. There is the belief that if we are fully dependent on the city government, for example, we will lose a level of independence. Um, I think there is very much a strength in making sure that you get your uh, funds from as many different locations as possibly can. So we're getting from private, you know, private backers, arts and cultural funds. We're getting them from the city government, of course. We're looking at European funds. We're looking at provincial funds. So I think in that um, plethora of different uh, financial streams is a certain level of independence, which, especially in the context of Amsterdam, is very much needed since our you know, interests, our wishes are often at odds with those from the city government. Um, so, yeah, in kind of maintaining that independence has been very important. Well, I'm also curious about the, the, the foundation and how it's staffed. Are you the employee or are you paid or what's your team of volunteers look like? Do you have a board? This would be so that other people in other parts of the world might go, you know, we could do that. Yeah. So what you kind of saw that during the pandemic, you very much saw a weekend nightmare foundation, I think. You know, of course, the nighttime economy as a whole was weakened, but especially, you know, emerging institutions like the uh, International Nightmare Foundations um, were very much struggling. So once I got elected, I very much ran my campaign on the promise of trying to grow it into a healthy, functioning political organ. Um, of course, very much independent and not being run by politicians, but very much political in its nature, you know, activist in its approach. Um, and I kind of realized that in order to do so, I would need a team. So what I very much did was look out for, you know, young, talented people. My entire board is uh, under 30, which is very much so by design. And, you know, beyond that, I have very much been trying to maintain this ring of knowledge and you know, experience. We have some very experienced individuals helping this relatively very young board manage the, you know, the, the prime structure of the organization, that is. Um, I now have 11 people working for me. This is including our Club Ethics project, um, which is the largest project the organization is currently running. Uh, it was 
founded by my direct predecessor, Ramon de Lima, who was the chairman of the Nightmare Foundation and temporarily took up the role of interim Nightmare uh, after the previously elected Nightmare had to leave. That's very much his biggest legacy is the uh, Club Ethics products. And, you know, it focuses on creating the, in, you know, the necessary circumstances in order for clubs and different venues in the nighttime economy to operate in a safe and inclusive basis. So there are some people running that. Uh, that's a project which I personally very much admire and have a lot of passion for. It's so how is the Nakbagmista determined? You said you were elected and you were elected, what, in March of this year? Yes. So and March 22nd, um, there was the last election. Which who votes? Of- I mean, how, how is that set up? Uh, members of the foundation vote for the new Nakbagmister? Is that correct? So in an effort um, to make the organization more democratic, the elections are actually public. So anyone who is interested uh, and sees themselves as an actor in the nighttime economy is allowed to vote. You know, I very much believe that culture and you know, nightlife are intrinsically linked to community. So that's very much an idea I'm trying to foster. And I think elections are a very necessary part of that. So what you see is that anybody who's interested was allowed to vote. Um, the voting happened by a public vote, a online vote, and a vote by a jury of um, professionals. So there were some representatives there from uh, mental health care, especially with a focus on nightlife, uh, you know, drug prevention, or at least addiction prevention. Um, there were some nighttime entrepreneurs, there were some artists there. So it was very much a very diverse mixture uh, of involved parties. So it was in this sold-out massive club, Bitter Zoot, which I would highly recommend if you're ever in Amsterdam to go check it out. Um, yeah. So it was very exciting. I didn't know I was going to be elected until the moment it happened. I was actually, which I you know, figured was going to be a bit of a false start to my nightmare ship. I was actually not there when they were supposed to announce the winner. Um, nice. I was smoking outside, raving to my friends about how the hell this was taking so long until a <laughs> bouncer came around the corner being like, all right, are you fake? I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm fake. All right, you're expected inside. So I see my younger brother standing in the doorway of uh, Bitter Zoot, very hastily uh, urging me to go in. So we run through the entire club, stairs up, stairs down. And I'm kind of thinking in the back of my head, you know, what if I'm elected and I'm not there? Will they just simply pass it on to the next person? Very much needing to remind myself that that's not how elections work. Um, So yeah, no, it was very much, it was a very exciting night. We tried to make it very public. We're very glad to see there was a lot of media attention, you know, for it as well, especially uh, when you're operating in an office which yields a lot of soft power, but no harsh power. I think it's very important make it very public, make it very democratic. So, you know, people can recognize you, people know where to find you. Yeah, I think it's a it's an essential part of developing an organization like this. That's perfect. And so tell us about you. Let's talk about you for just a second. You're a writer, yeah. you're a spoken word performer, I guess is how we say it in the States, often of your own poetry. You're an event organizer and a bit of a political animal, correct? That's absolutely correct. You, you could be in charge of writing my Tinder box. Okay, all right. So, and you've been in the nighttime space for a while, since fifteen. I saw. Tell tell us about that. How did you get from where you started to being the night mayor of Amsterdam? Right. So uh, I'm only twenty five, which is something which people very much like to you know shove in my face, uh, especially here in the political context. I'm very much a young one amidst some much more experienced people, uh, or at least experienced slightly eldered folks um thank you for being kind so oh yeah i mean uh, despite my young age i already know not to call the interviewer a fossil while you're doing the interview even beyond that it's no ill-advised but that's the bad politics um 
No, uh, yeah, so I started off um, at the age of 15, uh, mostly in the red light district as a journalist and a writer. So I would go around interviewing folks, uh, sex workers, bartenders, artists, you know, club owners, uh, basically anyone who was willing to talk to a very hyped up 15 year old um, and started selling those interviews. Kind of my first start as a writer. Um, my flu influenced voice might not uh, allude to it, but yes, I actually perform as a spoken word artist. Um, that's kind of happened in my late teens as well, mid teens. Um, I started performing in punk venues, squatting venues, uh, illegal raves, very much trying to celebrate uh, nightlife. So interviewing these people and then translating my findings combined with my own thoughts on the matter into poetry. Um, I actually did a little bit of that internationally. I uh, spent a lot of time traveling around, writing about the people I met there. I did some interviews with uh, activists in Iran, for example. I did some interviews with uh, partygoers in Latvia. I'm unfortunately no longer allowed into that country. Um, oh, whoa, whoa, wait, 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 wait. You can't, you can't just leave that alone. You, why are you no longer allowed in Latvia? Uh, I don't think I did anything very unbecoming, but um, I got ended up being charged 400 euros for disrespecting the national pride of the Latvian people. Um, and if I were to offer you 400 euros to never go to Latvia again, you know, I'm not saying it's worth it, but you would probably take it. Um, so yeah, so my flight back seemed very comfortable in comparison. Um, yeah, and I am afraid to say I haven't been left you know, back to the country ever since. Um, lovely place, though. Great people. Um, <laughs> Yeah, no, it's, truly, truly. Like, if you were to you know, put me on the spot and say disrespect the national pride of the Latvian people, I wouldn't comply. Okay. But apparently, you know, some ex-Soviet authorities did figure I uh, was doing precisely that. And as a result, I was, you know, testing the limits of their free speech law. I see. I see. Well, that's what a poet's supposed to do, I think. Um, oh, to a certain degree. I agree. Um, did you ever come to North America? Not, not really, actually. Not yet. It's very much been on the radar. I finished my first UK tour just before the pandemic. And obviously, you know, the whole operation had to shut down. I'm now prepping a tour back in Dublin, which is very cool. Um, very nice, so I'm going yeah. to Dublin. I'm going to the northwest of the UK. Uh, I spent a little time living just outside of Manchester. So I do feel, have a lot of love for the area. So yeah, no, I started off performing because I'm I'm getting distracted. But you were asking me uh, how the hell sure. did I end up being nightmare? Yeah. Um, I actually got involved in politics when I was seventeen. Um, uh -huh. I was raised well, yeah. So I, my grandmother was very much like a third parent to me, and her upbringing played a major role uh, in my youth. And she was a painter and very much a matriarch of the neighborhood. So on Saturdays, she would host these painting and drawing classes, and in the uh, the, the early mornings, the children would come by. In the afternoon, you know, the, the adolescents, the poobers, as we call them in Dutch. And then at night, the adults would come by and they would, you know, discuss their problems. She would offer solutions, mediation for the neighborhood. Um, there were actually, there was a lot of talk about naming the square next to her house after her when she passed away. Um, and I was just kind of walking around there, you know, carrying paintbrushes and, you know, glasses of lemonade. Um, so very early on, I realized there was this very strong connection between, you know, fostering a sense of community and operating as an artist, operating as a, in the cultural sphere. The vision for the night statements that I've seen from the foundation, they carry very strong political advocacy role. You were just talking about having been introduced to uh, the political spectrum, even when you were younger. 
And uh, I want to look at a couple of these vision statements and then you tell me about how the foundations are addressing some of these and what kind of actions are being taken, because it's a very, it's a very intriguing and solid platform. Again, something I think that could be replicated by anybody around, around the globe that dares. Uh, The, one of the statements was the night should be stimulating and push boundaries. This is this way it distinguishes itself from the functions and values of the day. How is the foundation and how are you doing that? Distinguishing the night from the day. I feel both as a poet and a political scientist, I am very much fascinated by the idea of opacity. Um, You know, the less we see, the more we actually realize, you know, a very uh, kind of a chance to connect through the mysticism of the night. You know, there's very much this foggy essence going around, you know, less uh, people are more themselves, I feel. And I think this is innate to operating at night. Um, I think there is something truly comforting about the sun being down. I think this is, you know, very unconstantly felt by a lot of people. And as a result, you know, the night has always been the place where, you know, the status quo is being pushed aside, where new ideas are being, you know, polished, where, you know, you see emergence of new artistic movements, you see emergence of new youth culture, and you see an emergence of, you know, political progressivism, so to speak. There is a certain relevance which you only see at night. And I think... There is a very strong conviction within the organization, and which is, of course, one of our uh, mission statements, indeed, uh, to push boundaries by introducing the day to the values of the night. Um, we very much believe in blending the dichotomy between night on the one hand and day on the other. You know, it's very much more of a, you know, a spectrum of different shades of gray where you can kind of see these nighttime values kind of seeping into mainstream society. I think it's a very healthy process, and it's one of the things which has very visually shaped our city. We, you know, as Amsterdam, are the result of this intermixture between, you know, nighttime actors and, you know, a very receptive daytime crowd. And I feel that in, you know, a society that's becoming increasingly prude, that's becoming increasingly reactionary, um, gentrified in a lot of instances, these things are at risk of being lost. So I think our mission statement is even more valuable now than it was when we, you know, were founded. Um, so I'm very curious to see how we in Amsterdam um, are going to tackle this approach. You know, the, the renovation of the red light district is one right. uh, topic that comes to mind. But internationally, this has become more and more relevant and is becoming more and more relevant. There's another vision statement here that talks about authenticity of sorts. Quality and substance should be the principles leading those who shape nightlife, not haughty furniture or expensive champagne. Talk to me about that. Why is that something that you as an organization are charging forward on? Well, I could talk to you about champagne for hours. I don't know very little about the subject except uh, my personal liking. Um, so I wouldn't say it's necessarily a disdain for the nicer things in life. If anything, I think as nighttime animals, we are very keen uh, to celebrating those things. I think um, it's very much about the fact that nighttime, uh, nightlife and the nighttime economy are in a position where we continuously have to prove our right of existence. Um, and in that battlefield, if you will, it's very easy for more commercial actors to emerge and sustain their enterprises. I think there is definitely a value to, to a commercial nighttime economy. You know, it's an immense engine between the economy of cities, between the economies of nations. Uh, so in that sense, uh, it should be, you know, fostered. But if you're asking me personally, as someone, you know, currently holding my position, and if you were to ask, you know, those uh, spending their lives at night, there is a more immaterial value 
in sustaining those communities and those venues that try to foster a little sense of connection, that try to foster a sense of authenticity, that try to offer you something you haven't seen before. And unfortunately, by its very nature, those things don't tend to make a lot of money. So there is very much a tension between, you know, serving the interests of the nighttime economy and serving the interests of more experimental actors, um, though there doesn't have to be. I think very much in the context of a gentrifying city, they're often at odds with each other. But kind of what we try to do within the organization is align our visions, see how we actually want the same thing. And we're just trying to create a society in which nighttime citizens are served equal amounts of facilities as those living during the day. Fantastic. Now, the foundation has, as you have described, a very strong political advocacy role. And I'm curious about how you are managing to keep the nighttime agenda in front of city leaders and policymakers. One of your statements is the facts and a sense of vision should determine the policies of the city council concerning nightlife, not the emotions of a singular group whatever you're referring to there. And then another one says a healthy cooperation and dialogue between the city council and Amsterdam's nightlife. The foundation offers the new perspectives and ideas. How are you managing to keep this in front of them and getting the buy-in of policymakers? Right. So I'm referring to that first statement that was uh, about the you know changing red light district in which you see there are a lot of people um, sometimes living in the red light district, but more often than not posing as residents of the red light district. Um, and that their interests are being weighed exponentially more than those of the sex workers operating within the red light district. So I kind of feel it's my duty as nightmare to make sure that interests of actors and groups who are often historically ignored should be pushed on the agenda. So I think it's my duty as nightmare to make sure that the interests of groups and actors who are historically ignored are being pushed higher on the agenda. It's very much a place-making duty in that sense. So I kind of see it as my duty to make sure that, let's say, sex workers, artists, you name it, um, who are currently undervalued members of society uh, are getting their fair share. So I always try to say it's not my responsibility to represent people in nighttime. I think it's my duty to kind of make sure there's a little space for them to I'm sorry, all of this sounds highly pedantic. Let's do this one more time. Apologies. I'll, however you I want to that express next it. time I'll be a bit more eloquent. Yeah, no, no. Um, however you want to express it in a way that doesn't feel so stressed, like I'm performing, you know. I just just tell me, how are you how are you doing that though? How are you getting in front of the policymakers and impressing upon them these particular priorities? Um, well, I think it's important to make sure that we kind of enter into a position where they can't really ignore us. So um, I come from an activist background, so I think it's very important and more useful than we often give it credit for to, at times, just be very fucking annoying. Um, I can swear, right? You can't. Oh, my God. Hell, I will. Oh, too. wonderful. Right. Good. Um, <laughs> see, that already helps a bit. My punk ethos was kind of... Uh, no, no this, is, this is my operation. I can say and we can say and do whatever we damn well Oh, want. lovely. All right. Well, in that sense, it's my duty to be very fucking annoying. Um, <laughs> but that's the thing. It's about kind of combining, on the one hand, uh, political knowledge and, you know, a certain plan, strategy, um, with being vocal, with being out there, with being unequivocally ourselves. Because, you know, it's, it's very, I think that's maybe the most difficult balance of being nightmare. Because mm. um, we are trying to celebrate the authenticity of, you know, that nighttime has to offer. But on the other hand, we are uh, working on making sure that our voices are heard. 
And those two are unfortunately often feel like they're contrasting. So my job is about trying to find a synthesis between the two. So in the discussion of the red light district, we're on the one hand making sure, or I'm on the one hand making sure that I'm involved in all talks necessary, that I'm allowed to invite people, uh, actors, interested parties to these meetings. Let's say the sex workers, for example. Um, on the other hand, it's, you know, uh, paired with an activist approach. I'm speaking with Frick Hoalak, nightmare in Amsterdam in the Netherlands. Uh, there are several links here you can go to to get some more information about the foundation and their work. I'll post these along with this podcast at nachburgmeester.amsterdam, also on Facebook at nachburgmeester, and then fascinatingly on Instagram at nachburgmeester.amsterdam. Adam, uh, whoever Adam is, uh, let me, this will be kind of my final question. Uh, in March, the city of Amsterdam, I guess the city did, launched a digital discouragement campaign targeting men in the age range from 18 to 35, mostly of the British rowdy types to stay away and not pop into Amsterdam's red light district for weekends of debauchery and disruption because the Brits like that. What's the story behind that? And what did the foundation do? Or did foundation have any role in this? Or Right. So personally, I was elected on a platform of debauchery and disruption. Um, so I don't <laughs> see how it's relevant to my uh, position as nightmare of Amsterdam. You know, it's not just your ordinary town. It is very much in a certain sense in the city of Europe. Um, and I think on the one hand, it's, you know, heritage. Uh, in this debate, I'm often the one kind of reminding us that these things aren't simply a nuisance. They are what made us city um, what it is today. And I think that's something we forget to value at times, especially in politics. Um, but it also kind of conjures up another dilemma. If you ask me who are my favorite tourists, I would probably describe an image of an elderly British couple coming here for the first time to, you know, try smoking a joint, you know, enjoying the canals. In, in that sense, very much drug tourists. Do we have any problems with them? No, they're usually here. They're very lovely. They're trying to, you know, they're trying new things. And I kind of think it's wonderful that our city has always been a place for people to come and try new things. You know, those more liberty and freedoms are very dear to me. So, you know, who is the problem? Um, I think to the degree where you can speak of a certain group being the problem, I think that's a little um, unnuanced. And I think that might be the first mistake the city government has made. Um, but yeah, we definitely have a problem with drunken groups of Brits coming here uh, for 24 hours, usually, um, you know, we are very much a 24-hour nation, and they usually don't even book a hotel here. They just, you know, come over, they book a cheap flight or you know, a cheap train ride, come here, get absolutely wasted, you know, vomit in somebody's porch, and you know, leave again. Um, so the stay away campaign was started by the city government, not our foundation, to kind of scare them off. Um, as a result, they kind of made it look like DGA. Um, so the main criticism received for this campaign was the fact that it made trashing our city look a little too enticing. Mm. Um, and I have to agree with that sentiment. See, that's the thing. I, in this entire discussion, I don't want us to become an, just another city where, you know, weed and sex work are outlawed, where, you know, drinking is restricted to the absolutely decent minimum. I think the problems will keep arising uh, as long as we offer these cheap and unsustainable ways for tourists to come over. You know, we're only increasing the means by which you can get to Amsterdam, I think. The transport industry has very much been left out of targets um, in combating over-tourism. And I think we shouldn't you know, strive to make our city less pleasurable. You know, I've never heard in this entire discussion someone say, let's just you know, 
put the put the Tower of Pisa, you know, back on its feet, you know, make sure that none of those nasty Brits are coming over. And I kind of feel like we need to treat the red light district, our coffee shops, and you know, our bars in the same way. They're heritage. They are often the oldest part of our city, and I think we should try to find a more nuanced message and focus on making sure that tourists coming here are aware that they are entering communities. Because I think very often they arrive, you know, uh, and they think it's just another Disneyland, but one where, you know, you can get drunk without people judging you for it. And instead, we should make sure it's conveyed that we are a city. You know, this is my home. This is our home. Um, you are welcome as long as you're a respectful guest. And as long as you're a respectful guest, I really don't care what you want to do and who you want to do it with. We can be respectful. How about you? This has been Season 2, Episode 19 of 24 Minutes from 24 Hour Nation. Visit us online at 24hournation.com and follow us on social media at 24 Hour Nation. My name is Randall White.